these are the things that I learned during the 13th week of 2011, March 27th through April 2nd. March 27th, the Apple eMac. Short for the Education Mac, this interesting computer from Apple is a milestone of sorts, being the final cathode ray tube-based Apple all-in-one computer. Originally released April 29, 2002, the eMac was around all the way up to July 5, 2006, as a lower-cost alternative to educational institutions. The computer wasn't exactly a barn burner in terms of technical specifications, but it provided the target market with what it needed, featuring a 700MHz PowerPC G4 processor, 128MB of RAM, and a 40GB hard drive built right in. Many of these components could also be upgraded. These specifications are competitive with other systems released in that era. And again, it's nothing groundbreaking, but for education, this is a pretty good deal. And personally, I think a 40 gigabyte hard drive might have been a little bit generous for that time period as well. In subsequent iterations, Apple would also improve these technical specifications over time. By 2006, however, with the Intel transition away from PowerPC Macs, Apple opted to discontinue the eMac in favor of a lower-cost custom iMac configuration for educational markets, enabling them to abandon the initial CRT iMac design. So other than a brief history about its use in education, the eMac isn't really much else to write home about, aside from it being the last cathode ray tube-based Mac computer, and the last Mac computer to look like the first-generation iMac. In January of 2012, a YouTuber who goes by B. Bishop PCM made a video review of the Apple eMac and discussed all of its benefits and shortfalls. I highly recommend this video if you would like more information about the Apple eMac. It's funny how your memory works. I thought that this video had actually come out on this day, March 27th, 2011, but it came out several months later. So I must have learned about the eMac through some other means. Maybe it was just through idle Wikipedia surfing, which was something I did frequently. If you come across one of these computers today, don't expect it to do all that much. Since it is stuck on the PowerPC G4 processor, it is unable to run any version of macOS after 10.5 Leopard. And being a G4 processor, it cannot really run 10.5 Leopard all that well anyways, so you'll be stuck with 10.4 Tiger for the most part. And given how old that operating system is and the abandoned architecture it's on, software support is few and far between. I suppose it's still useful as perhaps an offline music streaming server, or perhaps a museum display, or maybe just a picture frame that takes up a lot of electricity. Whatever floats your boat. March 28th. I could use iframes instead of JavaScript for menus. During a time of great technological discovery, I was doing a lot of web design work for a student involvement office on the campus, as well as doing the website work for the TV station. I was trying to figure out ways to easily design, develop, and deploy 
certain areas of content for websites. Bear in mind, I was only doing this with just regular static HTML without doing anything like using databases or any kind of fancy content delivery networks or anything like that. And a couple of strategies for doing things like drawing website menus at the top of pages included the possibility of using a free little blob of code called the AnyLink menu, which allowed for easy adding, updating, and deleting of navigational elements to a website, or I could have used something called iframes. And the debate between using iframes versus JavaScript can net certain differing opinions depending on who you ask and where you search on the internet. In the long run, I think that JavaScript is really the better option between the two, but I tried at least both back then, and I do anecdotally remember that while iframes might have been modestly easier to update, where I didn't have to update the code on every single page, it wasn't great in terms of design and page rendering. It also causes a few strange quirks and accessibility issues. In an article from a website called Digital Ad Blog, it details the difference between iframes and JavaScript. Iframes have advantages such as being safe and used mostly by ad-serving technologies, some browsers disable JavaScript when they won't disable iframes, height and width are part of the DNA of the tag which gives more options on sizing, and you can implement an iframe anywhere on a page. However, some of the disadvantages of iframes include not being supported by all browser types, it's not great for search engine optimization or SEO, and certain device types may not recognize the iframe tag. Meanwhile, on the other side of the street, JavaScript tags have advantages such as most browsers support them, it's not too taxing on the browser or the server, is easily accessible, and multiple ad sizes can be served through JavaScript. Some disadvantages, however, include the possibility that users may disable JavaScript, which removes the functionality entirely. It may drive up the utilization of the server or the web browser, which could drive users away due to slowness. So there are some clear trade-offs, and granted, a lot of these trade-offs have to do with advertising, which if you're using an ad blocker or if you're not concerned with advertising, it may not apply to you. So maybe not the greatest set of examples. But a few of these still do reign true, such as the possibility that JavaScript can be disabled at anyone's discretion. That being said though, most of the time I'd say in modern day JavaScript is almost always on, unless you go out of your way to disable it. Iframes are often discouraged, I find, as they tend to introduce some strange behavior, they don't validate well in HTML validators, and they can introduce problems in terms of accessibility for screen readers, and search engines may not be able to index your site very highly if they are utilized. All of these things considered, it was a bit more of a debate in 2011 though, because back then, I don't think that the web was as developed as it was today, or at least it was in a different developmental stage. We had a bit less HTML5 content, although it was definitely becoming more prominent with the recent release of the iPad and its gradual adoption amongst consumers. 
And there was also the changing landscape of the internet overall with more focus on designing sites using databases, JavaScript, and other such technologies, relying less on static content. However, I was not the greatest web designer in the world, so I was still mostly just relying on simple HTML and CSS. If I wanted to do something fancy, such as design a menu that I only had to write once and then deploy everywhere, I had to go with either using iframes or JavaScript. I experimented with both, and I didn't mind the iframes portion of it, but I think in the long run, JavaScript won out. This was definitely a trial and error thing learned. You can probably make the case for either or if you really make enough of a convincing, passionate argument. Nowadays, I'm not really much of a web designer anymore. If I do need to make a website or design something, I'll actually harken back to some of this knowledge I learned about a decade ago. I don't usually prefer to make sites that are overly flashy. I still stick with the static content. If I was doing anything any more complex, I might opt to get a little more fancy by implementing WordPress or a database or something. But I'm a simple person when it comes to web design. Easy to please. I do appreciate the knowledge, though, and having the benefit of knowing alternate choices when necessary. March 29th. My college's SMTP server does work off campus, but you have to disable authentication, supposedly. This is a relic of a different time, back when information security might not have been as emphasized as it is today. While the threats of attack were definitely existential back then, they were not nearly as bad as they are today. And having an anonymous open SMTP email server relay system just open and available to the public is definitely not a best practice and is never something I would recommend but I do recall this actually being somewhat open at my university. Any server that is just generally open to the internet, especially an email server, can be abused for malicious purposes, be it sending out spam, or perhaps maybe their own account was unknowingly compromised, and then it would discover that open mail server and send out any manner of bad email via spam campaigns or whatever it is you can possibly imagine. And if you don't believe me, let me just read you a brief passage from official Microsoft documentation on the matter. Open Relay is a very bad thing for messaging servers on the internet. Messaging servers that are accidentally or intentionally configured as open relays allow mail from any source to be transparently rerouted through the open relay server. This behavior masks the original source of the messages and makes it look like the mail originated from the open relay server. Open relay servers are eagerly sought out and used by spammers, so you never want your messaging servers to be configured for open relay. On the other hand, anonymous relay is a common requirement for many businesses that have internal mail servers, database servers, monitoring applications, or other network devices that generate email messages, but are incapable of actually sending those messages. So there is a way to maybe do this correctly, but just having it wide open and having no means of authentication or verification of the identities that are sending the mail or having no method of gatekeeping the mail is very bad in terms of security and being a good mail server citizen 
in the overall scheme of the email world, so to speak. I'm sure in the years since, this vulnerability has definitely been patched up, as the focus on email and security in IT in general has definitely brought to light the need to tie up loose ends. This is just another example of 2011 being a different era in terms of technology. It's sort of like how cars 50, 60, 70 years ago may not have had seatbelts required, but now they do. Sometimes incidents happen, and we adapt. We make sure that horrific things don't happen again. And anonymous open relay servers are like the lack of seatbelts in the email world. March 30th. Adobe After Effects? Sorta. We talked about Adobe After Effects a couple of episodes ago, and real quick recap, it is basically a motion compositing video visual effects application. It is not meant to be a primary video editor. Rather, it is for touch-ups and certain special effects. It's kind of like an ace-in-the-hole companion to Adobe Premiere. And the overall Adobe Suite competes with Apple's Final Cut Studio Suite. Although I'm not entirely sure if Apple calls it Final Cut Studio anymore. But Apple's side of the street includes Final Cut Pro and Motion. I was interested in learning what Adobe's suite of video editing products had to offer compared to Apple's, as I was just trying to evaluate whether it was better to go with Adobe in the future as opposed to Apple's suite of products. And one of the advantages of going with Adobe was that you could use their software not only on Mac computers, but on Windows as well. So it was definitely worth learning. You can very easily make a case for software on Windows as opposed to Apple. One of those reasons is affordability. PC hardware is often far less expensive compared to Apple hardware. Another reason is familiarity. Certain folks might be more accustomed to editing videos on Windows as opposed to the Macintosh operating system environment. I've noticed that you are either a Final Cut Pro or Adobe Premiere person when it comes to video editing. While other editors exist, these two are the power players in the space. I attempted to learn After Effects, but I never really fully committed to it. I think I just researched it lightly, and perhaps installed it as a trial, and attempted to do some light effect work, but it never really stuck, and to this day I haven't really touched it since. So I think it was just kind of a failed experiment. But I do appreciate trying to branch out a little bit, and again, going with the theme of having alternate choices available if necessary, After Effects was an option to consider. As the old saying goes, don't knock it till you tried it. March 31st. Shutting down PowerPC G5 computers can lower the room temperature by double digits. During the final months of us still having PowerPC Mac computers at the TV station, we were suffering from a problem where our trusty in-office air conditioner unit was starting to flake out and fail on us. Let me paint a little picture as to how big this room really was. Imagine a small office with a really narrow door. You unlock that door and you take an immediate right, 
The overall office ahead of you is maybe only about 20 to 25 feet in length, and then about 9 to 10 feet in width. Now imagine a full-size metal desk, three full-size video editing workstations complete with three CRT monitors per desk attached to a Power Mac G5 computer, all of these machines, that of which are wired up to a server cabinet, also in the same room, containing all of the storage and server hardware necessary for all of the video editing workstations to function. All of this equipment was powered on and functional almost 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. You can imagine that this room heats up a little bit. An AC unit in the corner, piping up into the drop ceiling, to filter out the hot air was effectively the only cooling system this office ever saw, because this office was in the middle of the overall building, with no access to windows or outside open air of any kind. Ventilation was sparse. Now let's add another variable into the mix, the PowerPC G5 processor. This CPU, produced by IBM, was plagued with problems towards the end of its life and in its final generations. It had overall issues with heat and power efficiency. These issues contributed to Apple abandoning the IBM PowerPC platform in favor of Intel, which at the time offered better performance per watt, as well as offering multi-core configurations, something that the PowerPC platform just couldn't quite figure out in an equivalent capacity. In an article from Tedium, the PowerBook G4, for example, didn't come around until 2001, a year and a half after the Power Mac G4 first went on sale. But the architectural issues with the G5 capped the processor at below 3 GHz, seeming to suggest that this processor, originally developed for high-end servers and workstations, wouldn't easily scale down to the power-sipping needs of a laptop. So think about that for a minute. There never was a PowerBook G5 before the MacBook, we only had the PowerBook G4 before Apple switched over to Intel and released the MacBook Pro. There was some talk towards the end of the G5 era of a whole new generation of PowerPC processors to be developed by PA-Semi, short for Palo Alto Semiconductor, to potentially continue the line, including developing a then-current PowerPC G5 equivalent laptop processor. But by this point, Apple had decided to move on to Intel, and that feature never materialized. The desktop Power Mac G5, however, was released, and it was an absolute beast, but not in a good way. Within the span of a few short years, the Power Mac G5 would see several revisions and several hardware flaws, including some as severe as not being able to detect memory upon being powering on, due to the metal plate holding the RAM chips expanding and contracting due to the excessive heat caused by the CPU. Additionally, several models experienced issues with power draw inconsistencies, as well as cooling system failures. All of these hardware flaws combined with the unkept promise of making it to a 3 GHz G5 CPU convinced Apple to switch to Intel processors. Even to this day, I don't really believe those computers are heavily sought after for their computing prowess. 
It's been said that if you have one and you plug it in, you can watch your electric bill literally go up by the minute. It seems these aluminum desktop towers are better off being gutted and refit with modern PC parts as opposed to retaining their original IBM components. Unless you would like to preserve these desktops as museum quality display units for purposes of preservation and history. We ran a real risk by keeping these machines powered on without a functional air conditioning unit. Even if you don't have PowerPC computers in a room, running them without air conditioning is a major problem, as the heat of the computer will easily outpace the heat of the room. Computers operate at quite a high temperature. Combine that with high-intensity video editing or problems with the G5 chip just idling at high energy consumption, and you have a recipe for disaster. We ended up getting a small little thermometer to hang in the office, and we decided to perform an experiment where we measured the temperature when the machines were running at regular capacity with people in the room, and then one night we decided to power off all of the systems, including the server hardware, and measure the difference in the temperature. The results were astounding, and the temperature of the room was down by double digits when the systems were off. We had to present this data to the Student Activity Fund Committee to justify purchasing a new air conditioning unit to replace the failing one. It was in our best interest to get this done fast, as the Spring Film Festival was fast approaching, and we needed to be able to use the computers to edit videos and prepare for the big event. There was no way we could do it without an air conditioner. This overall experience was important for me as an IT professional to understand how important cooling a room full of computers truly is. Years later, I would encounter this in a real job at a much more critical level. It also motivated us to complete the push to move away from PowerPC-based Apple hardware to new Intel Mac Pro hardware. I don't want to spoil anything, but fast forward in a few months or so, and we will upgrade the workstations. But more on that later. April 1st. Nothing was learned on this day. April Fools. Just kidding. Some logic for playing League of Legends strategically. Oh boy, here we go. Here come the League of Legends things learned. In hindsight, I'm not entirely sure if I look back upon these memories in a positive light or a negative one primarily because it ended up kind of absorbing a lot of my life for a few years. A lot of those memories were mostly positive amongst friends, but there were some negative ones as well. I guess you can say it's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. Oftentimes, nostalgia can bias towards the positive memories and try to de-emphasize the negative ones. But anyways, for whatever it's worth, April 1st, 2011 was a monumental day where I started to learn how to play League of Legends. It started out where a friend of mine in college was trying to get me to play this game as it had absorbed not only him, but everyone in his apartment. Sort of one of those viral word-of-mouth gaming phenomenons. League of Legends was attractive because it was free to play, which was a new concept back then. You didn't have to pay anything to simply play the game, you could pay money to buy characters without having to play the game for long amounts of time, or you could purchase cosmetic skins, or all sorts of other little goodies. But the core game was completely free. 
and when you're in college and are strapped for cash, free is good. The general gist of League of Legends is, in a standard game, you have five players on either side of a playing field in an isometric viewpoint. The overall goal is to reach your opponent's base and destroy all of their waypoints, which in League of Legends are known as turrets, inhibitors, and the nexus. The game is team-based, but you also have a bunch of small disposable AI companions that assist you in your march to attempt to overpower the opposing team and win the game. A lot of strategy, however, is involved, and the way the map is comprised, there are multiple critical paths to take, and certain characters with certain abilities may be more beneficial to take specific ones over others. There also is the existence of a quote-unquote meta, where players observe that there are certain winning strategies that standardize the gameplay, sort of like plays in a football playbook. If you try to break this quote-unquote meta, you may anger some people, especially if they are random people on the internet. The League of Legends community is often regarded as one of the worst online communities in terms of friendliness. Sure, you can find plenty of friendly and helpful teammates, but for every one of those, there's usually three more toxic ones. And it always seems the better you get at the game, and the more you progress and level up, the more toxic people you encounter, at least in my experience. In April of 2011, however, I was just starting out and was a very low level. So I was basically put in with a bunch of players that also knew no better. And the game was kind of fun, especially if you played with someone who did have some experience and could coach you as you played. These are some of the better memories that I have with the game. I distinctly remember on this day, I was being coached on how to play a character known as Udir, who is sort of like this very mystical, berserker-type character, who is skilled in hand-to-hand -hand combat and can assist other teammates in making big plays. Aside from that, it was more or less just basic knowledge on how to advance, when to take down towers, when to fight, when to run, and basically how to win. There will be a lot more League of Legends things learned in the coming days, weeks, months, and possibly years, up until a certain point when I stopped playing the game. Speaking of which, April 2nd, a good Heimerdinger build in League of Legends. Another character in League of Legends that I frequently played was known as Heimerdinger. If you can imagine a two-foot-tall Doc Brown from Back to the Future, with some elements of Albert Einstein thrown in, and maybe bits of the Engineer from Team Fortress 2, that's more or less Heimerdinger in a nutshell. He was a character that I loved to play, and was very near and dear to my heart. The way that this character was designed, along with his abilities and utility, just really resonated with me. It also helps when you can relate with a character that is similar to another character in another game. Specifically, I was thinking along the lines of the Engineer from Team Fortress 2, a class-based first-person shooter title that I put hundreds of hours into. The Engineer can build sentry guns, which was similar to Heimerdinger's turrets. Through this familiarity, I was able to get into League of Legends a whole lot more, and I found my main character that was often my first choice. At the same time, Heimerdinger wasn't considered to be a very viable character at the time. His abilities were somehow considered very weak, 
and he was considered to be more of a situational pick for a lot of games, perhaps to counter other characters in very niche situations. I didn't care, however. I played him a lot, and I was able to leverage his abilities to win a lot of games. The developer of League of Legends, Riot Games, often has a tendency to release very frequent updates that adjust the game's balance. A couple years after 2011, Heimerdinger was reworked, and some of his abilities were radically changed. And I didn't end up playing him as much after that. For some reason, I just felt the magic had worn off, or I couldn't quite figure out his new abilities, even though they might have been considered more competitively viable. By this point, however, I had learned other characters, so it wasn't really that big of a deal to me. But Heimerdinger was my first favorite character in the game. There were others to follow, but he was the first. And with that, we've reached the end of another week of Things Learned. This week was largely saturated with a lot of Apple things once again, but it was a pretty good variety. It also started my dive into the world of esports and League of Legends, as well as playing around with some software and discovering a few potential security vulnerabilities in some major email infrastructure. In other happenings this week, I had registered for a summer financial accounting course. This was largely such that I wasn't going to be overwhelmed in any upcoming semester because the way the math had worked out, I was going to have to take a fifth class, and I wasn't quite sure if I would be able to handle that workload. I was warned that financial accounting would be a bit of a handful, and I'm actually, in retrospect, really glad I took it on its own during the summer. In other news, email exchanges were going around discussing the final design of the Spring Film Festival poster that we were going to put all over campus. It looks pretty cool, sort of has a mystery theme to it. And lastly, I was trying to figure out some summer subletting housing on campus or adjacent to campus, so I wouldn't have to worry about wasting so much gas and commuting roughly 100 miles a day in the previous year, I tried to commute each day to the campus during the summer to do a couple of summer jobs and conferences, and that was no fun at all. So this year I decided, nope, I am definitely going to just sublet an apartment somewhere. This week was the start of some discovery in terms of what was the cheapest and best option. And that about wraps up this week. Nothing else really notable. We are done with March, and we are on to April. Things Learned is a podcast that is produced and edited and written, obviously, entirely by myself. There is a little help from some royalty-free music, all of which are credited in the show notes. And I'll also post relevant information about things that I learned in the show notes wherever possible. If you are a new listener to Things Learned, I thank you for giving this podcast a try, and I hope you subscribe. And if you are a returning listener, I once again thank you for continuing to listen to this podcast. If you have any feedback or want to give a rating, please drop a rating in Apple Podcasts or wherever else accepts podcasts. It's completely up to you. I would much appreciate it. And I hope you stick around for next week's episode. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you next time.